Well, my name is uh, Andrew Jones, and I'm the campus pastor here at Leewood. <clears throat> and if I make gross noises, I'm just a little sick, so I'm, I'm apologizing now uh, if that happens. Uh, well, we are uh, still in the book of Matthew. If you've been with us for a while, that shouldn't surprise you. But for those of you who need a little variety, because we've been in this for a long time, we're going to actually take a break in the fall. So just two more Sundays, including this one, before we take a little break from Matthew. So if you're if you're like, when are we going to get out of here? Just, you, just hang on, two more weeks. Don't act like you don't think that stuff. I know, I know you too. Uh, anyway, uh, we're in Matthew. Jesus is teaching us here about true greatness. Uh, that's the big idea of the scripture we just heard read. And when I think about greatness, I think about one thing. I think about the Guinness Book of World Records. Right? This is the book where true greatness is found. Um, these are the people, right, who uh, look at the real Olympics and they think, well, I can't do that, but I can break a ton of toilets on my head in under one minute, so I'm going to do that. That's a, a real record. I couldn't actually win in hurdles, but if I put flippers on, I'm unstoppable uh, on the track. <clears throat> I know it sounds like I'm making fun of these people, but I'm really not. If I was good at something weird, I would totally do the same thing. <laughs> and admit it, you would, do the, you would too. We all want to be great. We all want to be great. That's why the, this book of world records exists in the first place. It's why we care how many followers we have on social media. It's why we argue when we play Monopoly. Even in the smallest and most insignificant things we do, we want to be great at something. And yet Jesus will tell us in this passage that true greatness in his kingdom is found in, in a completely different place, the last place perhaps we would look. He, he teaches that first place is the opposite of what we think. It's not in riches or power or success or looking happy or stupid world records like this. Greatness in his kingdom looks totally different. So let's talk about it. Turn to Matthew 20 if you haven't done that already, starting in verse 17. And just to kind of frame this a little bit, this is the, we've been in several weeks now in a row of Jesus really hitting the same theme over and over and over again with his disciples in the book of Matthew. And kind of the big idea he's been hitting over and over again is that the last shall be first and the first shall be last in my kingdom. And he's already said this to his disciples actually twice out loud. And now, kind of in that vein, he pulls his disciples aside and he says what is perhaps the most shocking thing we learn in the Gospel of Matthew. He's hinted at this before, but now Jesus really comes out and says it. Look at verse 18. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that is Jesus, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Now, these verses, uh, in so many ways, they, they represent a turning point for Matthew. Jesus, uh, as, as if you've been with us the last few months, you've, you've noticed he, his geography is kind of meandering. He's, he's in Galilee. He doesn't, he, he's kind of going back and forth between cities, preaching and teaching and healing. And, but this point in Matthew, Jesus says explicitly, I am turning my face to Jerusalem. This is where we're going. He's approaching the end of his mission. He knows exactly where that mission is taking him. It's taking him to betrayal and to torture and to abandonment and ultimately to death. He says, that's where we're going. And I'm choosing this, guys. This is, this is why I'm here. 
And this is the moment in so many ways that he has been preparing his disciples for, for about 19 chapters now. This is it. This is go time. This is the reason he came. He knows where true greatness is. He knows it's in Jerusalem, his destiny. But what's, what will become so shockingly clear in this story is that his disciples, despite everything Jesus has said and done and said again and done again, they have absolutely no clue. They do not get what he is saying at all. And the way Matthew tells it, the words, right, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, are fresh on Jesus' lips when two of his disciples, James and John, with their mom, right, come to Jesus. And in verse 20, uh, their mother kneels before Jesus and says, uh, say that these two sons of mine, and I imagine they're standing behind her, uh, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, translation, here's what she's saying. She's saying, when, Jesus, when you go to Jerusalem and you take power, because we all know that's what you're going to do. You're going to overthrow Rome, you're going to establish your government, and you're going to be king in Jerusalem. When that happens, can you give my two sons a nice cabinet post when you do that? You know, vice king, secretary of state, I'll let you, Jesus, you handle the details, okay? Whatever you want it to be. But can they be high up alongside of you in your new administration? Jesus, can you do that for me? Now, it's hard to believe the way the story is told, but James and John at this point, they are adults. <laughs> but I cannot help of thinking of my own children when I'm often at someone else's house and there's a toy they want to play with and I get that tug on my arm, right? And you lean down and they say, can you ask if I can borrow that toy for me? And I say, yes, sure, sweetie, I can do that for you. I picture them right behind their mom, maybe just kind of towing the, you know, <laughs> kind of like, come on, you know, elbowing each other, embarrassed. But I, I can't blame their mom because I don't know a mom who doesn't want great things for her children. And to be fair, when we first met James and John, which was all the way back in chapter 4, they were, in fact, we noted this in our, in our meeting this week, they were, in fact, running a small business. It was a mini fleet of fishing boats, so they had to have had some leadership ability, and maybe they're thinking, well, we're not the worst choice Jesus could make. <laughs> Peter's here. He's way worse. We're at least better than he is. What's the harm in asking, right? And we know Jesus is a softie, so let's get our mom to do it for us, and maybe that'll help grease the wheels. The problem is, they just haven't been listening. Jesus has just told them what it will mean, what his moment of glory will actually look like. He says, I'm going to die on a cross. And the only time in Matthew we ever see someone at Jesus' right hand and at his left hand, Matthew picks up that same language again, it will be the two criminals being crucified next to him. And it's as if Matthew is saying, remember that story? This is actually what it looks like to be high up in the reign of Christ. See, this is why Jesus responds the way that he does when, his, when Mama Zebedee asks him for this. Look at verse 22. He says, you don't know what you're asking. You have no idea. Are you able to drink the cup that I am going to drink? Are you able to go through what I'm going to go through? And I love their response, right? Just classic disciples. Yeah, we, we are able. <laughs> sure, sure. And I, I can imagine Jesus maybe smiling when they said that and then nodding his head. And I, I would, I'd imagine he said this in a very sober way. You will, you will drink my cup. 
But to sit at my right and my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it's been prepared by my Father. That's a very gracious no from Jesus. It's also a bit of a prediction, a prophecy of Jesus, because James and John will suffer tremendously, as Jesus does. If you remember, James uh, is the first of the 12 disciples to be uh, executed for his faith. John, though he died a natural death, uh, he was in exile for most of his later years. So Jesus says, you will drink my cup, but not right now. And the brothers probably left that conversation disappointed, but their trouble was only beginning because uh, the other disciples, who were no doubt within earshot of what was happening, were really, really mad. Verse 24, right? When the ten heard it, they were indignant. They were frustrated at the two brothers. And of course they were mad, not, but not because of some moral objection. They're mad that they, they had the idea before they did. <laughs> If you were especially apparent in the other Gospels, they were always arguing about who would be the greatest among them. And now these two brothers were trying to get an inside track with Jesus, and they're thinking, man, I wish I'd thought of that. And before, it's easy to look at that part of the story and say, what a bunch of bumbling fools. Why aren't they listening to Jesus? Before we get all high and mighty, I just want to remind you of the basic rule of Bible reading that my uncle gave me years and years ago. He said, find the worst character in the story and apply that to yourself. Matthew, doesn't. the last thing he wants you to do when you read the story is think, wow, they're idiots and move on. He wants you to ask yourself, how are we missing it too? How are we doing the same thing, perhaps in a much more subtle way? How are we tempted as people to make the same mistake? So here's our first observation from this story, I think. It's that everybody is looking for greatness. Everyone is looking for greatness. It's probably not a world record for you, but there's something in your life you want to be great at, even if it's just in your little circle, right? Your friends, your family, your school, whatever. It might be a little pond, but you want to be that big fish. And, And let me just point out, before we get too far on that, that that's not always a bad thing. We are, each one of us, we are hardwired for excellence, for greatness, for good work. We were created by an excellent and great God. Greatness and beauty and excellence, those are ways we reflect who He is. The problem is not our desire for greatness. That's not a problem. Our problem is that nine times out of ten, that desire for greatness is completely self-motivated and self-interested. You see, our power and our influence are not the problem. Our talent is not the problem. It's me. It's self. That's the problem. And the Bible, uh, you'll, if you, you'll see this in, in lots of places, actually, especially in the New Testament. The Bible calls that tendency to take greatness and make it about me. It calls it selfish ambition. You'll see that. Uh, in uh, James' letter, not this James, but Jesus' brother James, he, he will say, selfish ambition in its wake, there is always disorder and chaos. Always. And if you have ever worked with someone who will do anything, absolutely anything, to promote themselves, you know that warning is true. Nothing destroys a friendship or a marriage or a team or a whole company, a whole organization like one person's selfish ambition. And it lives inside of each one of us. That's what Matthew wants us to see, that potential is there. And it's very subtle, isn't it? Because most of us, uh, we would admit, and we know, okay, we, we know sexual uh, 
temptation. Sexual pleasure can seduce. Yeah, we get that. We know money can trip you up if you, if you misuse it. And comfort can be a, a, a terrible distraction. But greatness and power? How many of us think, yeah, that's a real weakness I have? How many of you, if I asked right now, what's your biggest weakness would say, I like to abuse power and use people to get more of it? Probably not many of us would raise our hand at that. But that doesn't mean we're not doing it. And the thing is, at least as I've found so far, right, is the older you get and the more influence you get with your family, in the workplace, with your friends, the more tempting this becomes to misuse it, to turn inward with it. So I want us to ask ourselves a question this morning. Where am I seeking greatness in my life? Where am I looking for greatness? Because every one of us is doing it, and it's not all bad, but those are the areas where you will be the most tempted to make it about you. So identify them. What are they? Let me just stir your imagination a little bit. Maybe it's your family life, something there. We want to have the best family. Maybe you find yourself, if this is you, you're frustrated maybe with your kids a lot or your spouse a lot when they do something wrong or they make a mistake, not because an injustice has been done or a wrongdoing has been done, but because it makes you look bad. And you've projected onto them the image you want for you when it comes to your family. You want to have a great family. Maybe it's uh, at work, it's at the office. This can look as subtle as taking too much credit for a good idea that was not your own. Or when you can't give the team credit for a good idea when you're in the meeting without them. It can look like giving too much credit for the team when something goes wrong and not taking enough of it on your own. Not my fault. I didn't do it. As I thought about this in my own kind of life and history, perhaps one of the most devastating places you see this happen is at school. Really at any age. What cost will you pay? What price will you pay to be popular with your peers? What will you compromise to climb the ladder? Have you ever put someone down just to fit in? Do you do and say things you shouldn't just to impress other people? And by the way, just to round this out, because it would be wrong of me not to do this, pastors are actually the worst at this. Trust me, I know a lot of them, okay? They are the worst at this. Because uh, pastors, we even use religion and use the Bible to make ourselves great so that we don't have to feel guilty about it. We can say all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And I actually remember one of the first sermons I ever gave, uh, in my, really in my life, but at Christ Community. Uh, I was at the Olathe campus, and I was actually, strangely enough, was preaching on this very story, but Mark's version of it at Olathe. The theme was, what, what is true greatness in, in his kingdom? And uh, it stood out to me because it was one of the first sermons I ever gave that I felt okay about, um, which takes a while if you've ever preached before. It takes, it takes a little while. And the people there were very encouraging, and it was great. And I was on my drive home from Olathe, and uh, I, that, that confidence and joy of doing a good job slowly turned in the car into smugness and pride. And I... I I caught myself doing it, and, I, and it was the first time I thought, this is really ugly. No wonder pastors are such a mess, because I was a new pastor. Now I, now I know we're a mess, but that was the first time I really felt it. I was like, I'm using Jesus' teaching on humility 
to be prideful. That's really gross. <laughs> Pastors are the worst, I told you. Um, even reading the story in our teaching team this week, we, we, someone pointed out that Jesus doesn't actually say who will be at his right and his left in the passage. And we had this moment where it's like, well, we know it's not James and John, but that means we actually still have a shot. which is not how you're supposed to interpret this passage at all. (laughs) Now, like I said, there's nothing wrong with greatness. There's nothing wrong with success. There's nothing wrong with popularity. There's nothing wrong with power. We're all given power by God. The question is, what are we willing to do or not do to get it, to get those things? Or maybe an even better question, and I'm stealing this from a guy named Andy Crouch. He's a great author and thinker on power. And he asks, who is flourishing because of your greatness? Who else is flourishing? Who benefits when you are in power and in control? Is it just you and yours? And we found this cartoon in our teaching team meeting, which I know sounds really bad, but I, I promise. <laughs> I promise that's a useful space. And I, it's a little cheesy, I know, but it summarizes this, this idea of how we think about greatness so well and if you can't see, there's two uh, families on this side of the street, and there's a guy sweeping the streets on the, on the other side. And here on the left, the first uh, mom says, if you don't study, you will end up like him, which is a very self-centered view of greatness and success. And then on the right side, this mom says, if you study well, you will be able to make a better world for him. See the difference there. So if you're the popular kid at school, are you helping the unpopular kids flourish? Is your popularity just for you and people like you? Or can you be welcoming and friendly with them? Can you go out of your way, young people, to use your influence that you have with your peers to welcome someone, make life better for them? Uh, If you're a manager, how are your employees doing? Are they empowered to contribute and to give honest feedback to you even when it's hard, or is your ego way too big and they would never dare do that? What about your friendships and your neighbors? All the relationships God has put in your life, how do people around you flourish when you have power, when you have control, when you have greatness and success? Because here's the thing, here's the most interesting part of this whole passage. Jesus is about to teach and and rebuke his disciples. He's going to huddle them up and say, okay, guys, teaching moment. But he doesn't rebuke them for seeking greatness. He rebukes them for looking for it in all the wrong places. Everyone's looking for greatness. But according to Jesus, here's what he teaches. Greatness is found in last place. Last place. Not first place. Which is ridiculous, isn't it? I mean... We've all been binge-watching the Olympics and the Royals for, I don't know, 14, 16 days. And if you haven't been doing that, what's wrong with you? You're crazy. Is there a statement, okay, with that backdrop in mind, is there a statement that more poorly reflects and describes how we think and talk about greatness than that? It's in last place. Greatness is, greatness is in first place. It's gold. It's beating the other guy. It's, it's being first in line. Really, Jesus? Greatness in last place? And he says, yes. Here's how he says it in verse 25. Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their great ones, their powerful ones, exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Right? Jesus, where is greatness found? He says it's found in serving others. How do I get to to last place, or sorry, how do we get to first place? He says, become a slave. And that sounds shocking to us today, but in the first century when they actually had slaves, that was a part of their world. They said, you want us to become like them? No one wants. By the way, uh, the uh, humility, what we call humility today, uh, putting yourself lower than where your society would put you, that was not a virtue in Greco-Roman society. That was a vice. That was a problem. It was inappropriate. It was completely counterintuitive to that world. Jesus says here, no, here's greatness. Choose to be last. And Jesus knows, he knows how radical this is. He describes it here. He says, everyone else you know uses their power for themselves. They are looking for people to serve them. But it will not be that way with you. Not with my people, not my kingdom, not in my church. Because the greatest in my kingdom is a slave. So here's another question I'm wrestling with. What does last place look like for me? What does it look like for me? Now, Jesus, hear me, he is not saying quit your job and go work in the service industry, though that might be good practice. (laughs) And he's not saying take the org chart of your life or your company and flip it upside down and you should forever be undercover boss and take the entry-level position everywhere you work. That's not what he's saying either. You can still lead where God has put you and be a servant. You can lead at your job, with your family, with your community group, wherever God's put you, the PTA meeting, you can lead there. In fact, most of you probably already know this by experience, but aren't the best leaders also the best servants? Don't those two things often go together? It's certainly true of the Bible. Read any any great leader in the Bible, and they are always good at serving This is also empirically true. We love the book Good to Great around here. We read it a lot, quote it a lot. Jim Collins is the author. It's basically a summary of his research on why, what makes good companies and good organizations, what sets them apart. And I just want you to listen to this part because here he's describing what is a level five leader, which in his system is the highest level leader you can have in any organization, a level five. Here's how he describes level five leaders. They build enduring greatness, so greatness that outlasts them, enduring greatness, through a paradoxical blend of extreme personal humility and intense professional will. Now, as far as I know, Collins is not a believer, but man, he sounds like one when he says that, doesn't he? Right? The best leaders are ambitious and they love greatness and excellence, but not for themselves. That's the key. They want it for something bigger than themselves, and they want it for other people. So listen to me. Don't stop seeking greatness. Just know where it's found. It's found in service to other people, whether it's people above you or beneath you or beside you, wherever they are. Who am I serving? What does it look like for you to choose to be last? Do we go around looking to be served, or do we look where we can serve? And I know that's a hard question, especially at church, because church has this tendency sometimes to pull us in until our needs aren't met 
or our opinion isn't validated, and then we bail, and we can use the church that way. And let me just tell you, I, I can do that too. I'm probably in a position to use the church more than anybody else in this room for my own selfish reasons. But here's the question, whose needs are you meeting here? Maybe another way to put it, who has a better experience of Jesus and his church here at the Leewood Campus of Christ Community because you are here too? And I know, I know there's, there's some objections around this. Maybe some of you are thinking, it's not really my personality to serve. I don't like to serve. I get it. But you are going to hate Jesus' kingdom if that's you. So start practicing now, okay? You've got to get used to that. Or maybe some of you are thinking, I don't mind serving as long as it fits me, um, my gifts, my passions. And, there, and let me say, there's real wisdom to finding in your life what you're good at, what you're passionate about, what stirs you, uh, what comes naturally, and sticking with that. There is real wisdom. But when it comes to service, when it comes to Jesus' teaching around our willingness to serve, he says nothing about gifting or preference. If there is someone to serve, do it. Slaves in the first century did not have that luxury. I don't like doing that. I'm not gifted to do that. I, I don't think you want me to do that. And this is the image Jesus uses. Here's what it comes down to. Okay, we're going to pursue greatness. I, I'm going to pursue greatness. We're all going to do that. But will it be in his kingdom or mine? Will it be by his standards and will or ours? Will we follow him to the cross in the, in the book of Matthew, or will we abandon him before he ever gets to Jerusalem? Or maybe you have the most obvious objection to this entire thing. The most obvious objection to this is, well, that just sounds terrible. Right? I don't, I don't want to be last. I don't want to serve people. I don't want, especially people who annoy me or have hurt me. Or, I don't, don't want to do that. And if I choose to be last, I'm, I'm not going to get what I want in life. And I like to be served. Who doesn't like to be served? Everybody likes that. Who's going to serve me? I get it. And that's why this last point in this text, it's, it's so important. And everyone wants to be great. Greatness is found in last place. But here's the good news of this text, is that last place is where Jesus is. Last place is with Jesus. And if last place is with him, that's where I want to be. And if that's where he is, where else would we go anyway? And you know what really blows me away about this passage? He's not asking us to do anything he's not already done. He has every right to look at each one of us and say, you need to serve more, and why don't you start by serving me? But Jesus, the Lord of the universe and the creator of all, he does not say that to you. What does he say instead? Look at verse 28. He says, we are to serve even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And, and, I, and I will never completely wrap my mind around this, but somehow for Jesus, this moment, he's existed for time and eternity in the glory of heaven that we can't even fathom, but somehow for him, this moment, his coming and dying on a cross in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago in Roman-occupied Palestine, this is his moment of glory. This is greatness for him. His lowest moment is his crowning achievement. This very same John that's asked to be at Jesus' right, 
will write the book of Revelation. And when he sees Jesus in his glory, do you know what image he sees? You remember? It was a, it was a lamb who appeared to be is a slain lamb. That's what Jesus looks like in his glory. What king chooses a slain lamb as the symbol of his reign? What kind of king comes not to be served but to serve? What king pays off the debt of his subjects and not the other way around? Have you ever, you've never even heard of something like that. It's Jesus and it's Jesus alone who left the glory of heaven and his descent to last place. Which, make no mistake, that is what his life was about. His descent to last place for all eternity. That is for him his greatest hour. In last place, serving you and me, he finds his greatness. In paying our ransom, he, his mission is complete and his victory is sure. Right? This word ransom, it was often used at the time as a payment for the freedom of a slave. He's saying, become a slave, I will buy you. I will ransom you. Then you'll be my son, my daughter, and my family. And it's only in our debt and our slavery to Christ that Paul says we will ever find true freedom. So who's going to serve us? That was our question. Jesus says, I will. I will. I'll take care of you. I will set you free. And if he's served you, if he's paid your ransom, then we can choose to be last without worrying or anxiety or jealousy or pride. I can choose to be last because we know that's where Jesus is. Let's pray to him. Father, we, can, we cannot fathom, and I don't know if we ever will, that you came to this world not to be served, but to serve. And God, give us faith to grasp the audacity of that, that you, ruler of all, have come to serve, that you paid our ransom, and that because of that, we can give our lives to you. Make us a people of service. Make us a people of last place for the good of our city, one another, and our whole world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.